I don't actually know. I mean, this shows my ignorance because uh, I have basically not paid attention to bishops for most of my ordained career. Can you cut that out, Nick? <laughs> you cut that. So coming into ACNA in particular, right. um, yeah. that's got to stay in. That's going to be that's going to lead in. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you gentlemen today? Good. Surviving? It's funny, we uh, talked about purgatory last week, and here we stand in the purgatory of the 2020 presidential election, (laughs) the day after election day, but with no one yet in paradise. Uh, Both sides are claiming victory or at least claiming that things are going in their favor. Somebody wants to purchase an indulgence to get us out of this. I'd be all for it. You have this any- is just further, this oh, is just further say, confirmation brief that we all died. We all died years ago. The sixth sense, we're all already dead. The 2019 was actually the last year of, of our shared collective life on earth. And this year has just been one long purgatory. <laughs> I think there's some real merit, merit to that. Um, so let us out. Is that like a version of Elon Musk? Like we're all living in a computer simulation? Well, he does believe, he thinks that's a possibility. So does 51%. Right? No, no, no. That was, um, what's the guy's name? Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Right. <laughs> he says, I love that he goes, you know, there's a, there's a chance that we're living, um, the, the probability of us living in a computer simulation, uh, prone by, uh, you know, super beings is wait for it. 50 to 51 percent you know (laughs) in the world i'll take that odd those odds um so whoever's playing me is awesome that's all i can say if we're if if we're a sim um then you know obviously the twitch uh the twitch universe is um that's wow yeah i I know know what you're talking about online gaming yeah yeah anyway sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you but that's all right you did mean to and you successfully did i did involuntary (laughs) My my operator just can't get the, let you have the last word. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Well, let's transition um, from the miasma that is our search for an elected president and talk about our main topic for this week: our own elected leaders. Today, we're going to talk about bishops. Uh, the distinguishing feature of the Anglican Church, the church in which the three of us are ordained, but of course, several other mainline churches as well. You guys may want to argue differently, but it seems to me that bishops are just one kind of biblically defensible church structure. There are elder-led churches, congregational churches, varieties even within those varieties, and they all, arguably anyway, have advantages and disadvantages. In our own church, the Anglican Church in North America, ACNA, the big news this week is that a bishop has been asked to resign and has indeed resigned for failing to properly deal with a serious pastoral matter. So we've seen even our chosen particular method of church governance fail, at least to a certain extent, the the, the issue is being um, taken care of by the church at large. But I wanted to ask you guys, why do we structure our church this way? Is there biblical warrant for this? And practically speaking, what's good about it? And what's potentially bad as Jerry Seinfeld might say, what's the deal with bishops? Well, I, you know, I, this goes back to kind of a, a historic debate that Anglicans have with uh, Presbyterians and, uh, and others about 
about the biblical, the correct biblical ordering of the church. Um, it also has to do with the question, and I think we've talked about it before in this, in this podcast, uh, the debate between the regulative principle and the normative principle. Um, uh, Richard Hooker d- argued against the Puritans and four bishops, and part of his argument was, was an appeal to the normative principle, which we can talk about later. But biblically speaking, our, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters would say there's no warrant for the threefold ministry, that when you look at the New Testament churches, they were governed by uh, the plurality of elders, um, and you don't have this kind of this overseer office as a distinct office in itself. And I would agree that, you know, you look at uh, places like uh, Titus 1, and you'll find that the word for overseer, uh, episkopos, and the word for elder, presbyter, presbyteros, presbyteros yeah. yeah, they're used, they're used inter- interchangeably. But then you also note, if, you're, if you read Titus 1, what's going on functionally. And that is that Paul is, is writing to Titus so that he might appoint and right. oversee elders over <laughs> congregations. And so whether or not you, you isolate that term episkopos and use it for what Titus is doing or not, you have functionally already in the first century um, a church order in which there are overseers over presbyters. And that, I think, early, not only I think, I know that in, in some places in the church before the first century is out, you have you have a threefold ministry already functioning. If you read Ignatius, for yeah, example, Ignatius, actually, he's in the early, early second century. Yeah, uh, early second century. He he's very you know he talks about the bishop in exalted terms by and, <laughs> and he differentiates the bishop from the presbyter and the and the deacon. So you have a threefold ministry already, like within what uh, ten years after the last new New Testament book is written. Yeah, I mean, and Paul's doing the same thing in uh, first uh, specifically First Timothy. I mean, he mentions he touches on it. Timothy, but you know he's he's operating practically speaking as a bishop to a rector of a local congregation. I mean, this is what's happening. He's talking about how to how to raise up leaders, what the qualifications for the local leader should be, and he's giving him practical pastoral and um, ecclesiastical advice about the church in Ephesus from a distance. You know, and I think I think it was J.B. Lightfoot who was sort of the evangelical commentator in Church of England at the, um, I think it was at the, I forget when he was writing, but at any rate, uh, I just, the, the phrase stuck with me is he called the threefold ministry God's divine sort of supply chain. You know, he thought that it was, um, it makes sense and it certainly has scriptural warrant. Um, it doesn't specifically lay out, you know, the sort of the, the, the exact mode that we have. And yet, um, it seems to work fairly well. You know, how do you, I mean, it's, it, and you could apply it to just about any um, organization that needs hierarchy and structure. Um, and so the fact that we've been given this model in the pastoral epistles in particular um, has been embraced by the church. Now we could talk about the various ways the sort of apostolic succession has been understood and, and misunderstood or sort of the various weights that people put towards ordination and these offices. Um, and I think our Anglican tradition has at its best uh, rightly rejected sort of an over exaltation of the bishop um, is in certain sort of a office as it were that is um, above um, outside of the bounds of correction re- rebuke uh, re- you know rebuke and reproach and I think that's rightly what some of the reformed and more evangelical people are reacting against when they hear bishops and priests and deacons and sort of the ordination sort of this this exalted hierarchy sort of spiritual um, hierarchy the magic so, hands exactly and so I think that's where you know, we as Anglicans are sort of an oddity, uh, particularly uh, 
you know, I would consider myself a sort of reformed Anglican, um, you know, low church, all these things, but nevertheless have no problem with bishops or calling at times, even calling myself a priest, although I prefer minister. Um, and it's an oddity among my reformed friends because we have so many, so many things in agreement. And yet, um, you know, I still have a bishop and <laughs> don't have a problem with it. And I'm grateful for it in many ways. Uh, one thing I think we can agree on is that the common through thread of any kind of church structure is that it functions well to the extent that it is populated by faithful people. And our structure, like any, is if you have a bad bishop, then it's going to have problems. But the same is true of elders. If you have bad elders, you're going to have problems. And this is when we sort of have to organize a church, I think at least in theory, with the organization assuming that things are going to work out how 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 they should best work out. Yeah, I I, I, I agree with that, and I think I think that when when evangelicals come to our our congregation, for example, and they find out that there's you know there's someone over me uh, that, that I I have an actual direct authority who I to whom I have to answer, uh, the bishop. Uh, that actually gives them some comfort because a lot of these guys are fleeing from from independent churches or congregational churches where they've, where the congregation has been run like a dictatorship with the, with the, the head pastor being, being the, you know, the, the Fuhrer, the leader of the, of the, of the congregation with no accountability. And so it gives a lot of people coming from evangelical backgrounds, I think some comfort knowing that there's not, there's, there's a, there's a level of accountability above, above the pastor of the congregation. Um, and that's that's how that's that's one of the big pluses. Now, of course, the the I mean, we're we're all speaking practically here. We're not, and I want to I think we got to make sure we're recognizing that there's a big difference in the way, say, a Roman Catholic would understand what a bishop is, and the way we understand what a bishop is. We can talk about that later. But but practically speaking, I think that is one of the great benefits of Anglicanism is you have this that you have this 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 accountability over the over the congregational level. And we have uh, we have obedience owed to to our to our bishops. Now the problem is, though, and we saw this in the Episcopal Church, is if you have a church run by bishops and the bishops go bad, then then there's then there's you know, the Katie bar the door. Then, then you've got then you've got theological chaos. So yeah. there's there's a flaw in every kind of ecclesiastical structure, and ours is that if the top goes bad, the whole body is is just is messed up. And I wonder we can spend, you know, there's so many different ways that this conversation can unroll itself. But one of the things that I've found interesting to talk about with a friend of mine in the aftermath of this um, recent resignation in the ACNA is, you know, he, he wondered whether or not such a thing would have happened in a Presbyterian church where there was more than just one person who was sort of in charge of running the disciplinary process where this particular bishop sort of dropped the ball. And again, we see the sort of two sides of the advantages and the disadvantages as well. Sure, if you have one weak person, they can drop the ball. But if you have one strong person, they can be strong in a way that it's really hard for a group to be strong because one person can say no inside himself. Whereas if you have a group of elders or something like that, then there's, there can be politicking. There can be like, oh, well, you know, don't you want to stand for reelection next time? And the one 
is bad if it goes bad, but can be really powerful if it's a strength. It's a bit like a monarchy, actually. Yeah, I mean, I was it's a king, <laughs> like an enlightened hey, monarchy. The king is good. It's a great, great time. The king right. is bad. It's very bad, right? <laughs> That's right. So. I don't actually know. I mean, this shows my ignorance because uh, I have basically not paid attention to bishops for most of my ordained career. Can you cut <laughs> that out, Nick? <laughs> you cut that. Still going into A in particular. Right. Um, yeah. That's got to stay in. That's going to be the lead in. Well, we spent our careers <laughs> avoiding bishops, right? If he well, called, it was bad news. Yeah, yeah, we heard from him. It was bad news. Um, but I, uh, I don't know what the function and role of a standing committee is. But isn't that sort of like an advisory board to the bishops, or is that? I mean, or, or ideally, I mean, what, I mean, again, I think in this this type of situation, since the, the nature of it was um, possibly legal, you know, when you get into to um, to sexual harassment and things, that maybe he wouldn't didn't have the freedom to to talk about that. But I would like to think if I were a bishop, I wouldn't just be law unto myself. You know that I would at least maybe that's what the College of Bishops is for. You know, fellow somebody else out there to help be your pastor too. You know, I mean, I think that's what that would be um, to have, seek counsel and guidance from. But I do think, you know, that all uh, church church history is um, is replete with um, you know, examples and cautions in every single possible way of uh, ordering a church. You know, so I mean, the the sort of the most hardcore Baptists uh, who go to the just the local congregation is an authority and ecclesiastical um, unit in and of itself, not beholden or connected in any way to anything else you know, everything from that to our global Anglican worldwide communion and everything in between, like you said before, when, when it works, it works well. And when it, when it breaks down, as we've seen, um, it can get messy. And I guess, I guess the, the, the benefit to a bishopric in that respect is you are only, you are, as it were, just disciplining one man and as opposed to a group. I mean, I don't know, is that what you're asking, Nick? Like, is it better to have, to have just one sort of responsible party or is it, um, is it better to, to spread that responsibility out? I don't know. I mean, I'm not really asking. I'm just observing that in the cultural age we live in now where the winds of the world are definitely blowing against what scripture would have us stand firm on, there is a distinct advantage to having one strong person who can say yes or no. Yes, we will do this. Yes, the church is under my authority. will do this or no the churches under my authority will not. And as soon as you get a bigger group together, you start to get, well, um, maybe we should take a vote. And when human nature starts to vote in a large enough group, you tend to get what happens to humans in the world, which is the preponderance of sin. As we've seen though, when you get somebody in that one singular role at the top, that's no good, there can be, disaster all the way down but your your example of the baptist church that's totally disconnected from everything when that goes bad that church probably explodes and is gone forever mm. whereas at least in our polity there's a chance for a for discipline and a new election and new life on the other side of a disaster yeah, I mean that's absolutely. I mean that's that's a po the positive side of it, and we should we should probably maybe I do want to distinguish between either the Roman Catholic kind of Anglo-Catholic understanding of what a bishop is and what the relationship between the bishop and the church is, and and what we're talking about now, because the Roman Catholic would say, you know, without a bishop you don't have a church, 
because because the bishops are the ones who going back to this apostolic um, apostolic succession discussion we were having that they're the successors to the apostles and and and, and they're the only ones who can ordain priests and so and you have to have sacraments to have salvation so without an actual bishop in apostolic succession you don't have a church you don't have the sacraments you don't have priests and salvation is at stake here so uh, until for the longest time until after vatican until vatican ii i mean the, the, roman, the roman catholic church wouldn't even acknowledge that other denominations were were churches they were or, or christian christian bodies they were all the heretics and apostates um because of this um, and even you know this idea kind of creeps into our to our Anglo-Catholic brothers and sisters thinking through their understanding of the bishop is that you know well you know you have to have the bishop in order for there to be a legitimate sacramental um, aspect to the church. And this argument is one reason why the Reformed Episcopal Church broke off uh, from the Episcopal Church back in the eighteen seventies because I think it's eighteen seventies um, because the those the Reformed Episcopal folks said no. The bishop is definitely has. We should definitely uphold the threefold ministry that has been inherited from the ancient past and and continue to this day. And yeah, we believe that there are there are there are our bishops are in succession from the apostles, um, but their authority rests not on uh, some kind of sacramental uh, authority being passed on through the laying on of hands. Although there's definitely inst- institutional authority passed on that way. Uh, it rests on their their upholding the apostolic teaching, um, right. and and so insofar as they do that, they are legitimate bishops. But we can also say, looking at our Presbyterian brothers uh, and sisters, okay, well, are they are they upholding apostolic teaching? And if so, look, we might disagree about ecclesial order, but that, that's a church. Yeah, they have they have the, they have the sacraments, they have um, the Word of God, and they have discipline. They have the marks of the church, so it's a church. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I got into, I think we talked about this a while back, but I got into a discussion with someone who was essentially taking that, um, they were Anglicans, uh, they were taking Roman Catholic position about the necessity of, of bishops seen in that light and with the manual, you know, apostolic succession through manual transmission, that this was, this was for his, by his attestation, the most crucial thing of the nature of the church. And I just sort of said, I just can't. I just can't go there. I don't see it. I don't, I don't believe it. And I, you know, love you as a brother, <laughs> but um, we're going to be in different churches. It turns out, or at least different, different expressions of the same church. But, you know, I think I love this because then you see it sort of, I, I see it sort of as a licensing, you know, like a badge and gun, you know, you can, you, here's your, here's your, your badge and gun for your Bishop office and you're held accountable to the word of God, you know, scripture, tradition, reason, as it were. And then if you step out of this, well, then we will gently and then increasingly with increasing force, correct you until we have to remove you. That's for the sake of the church. That's not, you know, punitive or whatever. And I think that when you have a different understanding of ordination uh, from the, from deacon up to Bishop, well, then you get into a situation where you are unable to, discipline or at least you feel like um sort of your hands are tied and so you start moving priests around or moving bishops around in different places and you get into this weird situation where you have people even argue that the bishops who are on their face actively denying central tenets of the christian faith nevertheless are still seen as a bishop because of what right. took place in their ordination and i think that that um well, I reject, I reject that, you know, and I think, I think the good, the Protestant people um, reject that uh, rightly. So say more what you mean about ordination. 
I assume you're referring to whether or not there is some sort of ontological change. Well, yes, of course, that would be the, that is the argument. You know, we don't believe that ordination is a sacrament. You know, we don't believe that it is, um, uh, we think that it is a calling, a vocation. You know, I think the Lutherans have it right in this way, vocatio. You know, we're being called out, set apart. Uh, we're beholden to the, um, to the lists of, of qualifications. You know, not all of you should, uh, should aspire to be teachers, brother. I mean, there's a lot of responsibility that you are undertaking when you, presume to speak for God. Um, and so there's something very powerful and meaningful to ordination, but not in a ontological sense, not in a charism, as it were, um, other than perhaps the people who are leading you have a gift of, you know, the gift of faith, Paul talks about it, the gift of, you know, some sort of event, some gift of the spirit that actually is useful in the service of the church. Uh, but that's, that's something different than the act of ordination sort of changing you from something you were not to something you now are, and then establishing sort of a separate strain of human you know, <laughs> alongside the normal strain. Oh, really? I mean, um, you're now a human capable of being, being Christ at the altar. Uh, yeah. Well, I did think it was weird that when I got ordained, I screw wings. That was weird. Um, but, you know, they got, I got better. I felt this like tingling on my spine. <laughs> she turned me into a newt. Uh, I got better. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, well, that's true. I mean, that goes to the very, the very heart of our sacrament, sacramental differences, because the way the priest operates in the Roman Catholic Church is almost, almost exactly like the priest operated in the Old Testament as the one who mediates between the people yes. and God and and brings the offerings to uh, the people to God and brings the the grace of God to the people and apart from that priest you have no access um, you have no access to um, to the treasury of Mary himself right right exactly yeah. so literally so the, no access right like only the priest could go in yeah yeah so without the, without the priests you are you are lost um, and without the bishop you have no priests without the you, you, it, 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 this is go ahead yeah i mean this is why i just keep reflecting uh, i just wrote a book review for a book about Lutheran theology, you know, it's like the nine millionth book. <laughs> How many pages that. is that? <laughs> it's only 186 <laughs> pages. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And it's by a man named Paul Henlicky, who I have some differences with, but but it's a really interesting read. And, and the, what I really liked about it, to your point, Matt, is that he continues to show how whatever the variations within Lutheran theology have been, and there have been many, that the, the central kernel has not been lost, which is that faith alone justifies, like not the church, not the mediatory role of the priest, not even taking the sacraments in and of themselves, ex opere operato. These are gifts of God, but they are not, they are not the gospel. They're not, they're not what saves you, but they are means by which God is continuing to elicit and feed faith in the life of his people, you know, calling forth the church. And so I came about that with respect to bishops, priests, and deacons and the role of the church, because for me, my entire understanding of even my own vocation, as I keep using that word, changed in light of Luther's teaching, uh, the deeper I've studied it, because what I see is the role of the church is just that, is, is this one constant proclamation, you know, and we, we, we preach to all five senses, you know, we preach through, through um, you know, you eat the gospel, hear the gospel excuse me, smell the gospel, experience the gospel. And it's, it's, it's law and gospel, of course, but it's not ever 
um, grounded in, you know, the particular song, the particular person, the particular experience, the particular anything other than that which then brought you to new life by faith and faith alone. And so I think when you get into the problem, I mean, I talk about this all the time. I say at the Reformation, the Anglican Church um, essentially kept the, the form that had been sort of, that had grown up around the late medieval world in particular, um, but we replaced the engine, you know, so there's a lot going on under the hood that you may or may not even recognize if you just walked in. Uh, but fundamentally, we, uh, we essentially reordered the relationship of the church, whereby we no longer stood between you and God. We were sort of a place where you were met uh, directly through the preaching and through the word and sacrament, you met God directly through his son by faith. And that's what, that's, that's, can't be a bigger change, you know? And I think people still are, are drawn back to what I consider to be the Galatian heresy, just trying to find some mediatory foothold um, that they can either, they can either hold on to themselves or as often has been the case in the church, exploit to the detriment or, or control of others. And we continue just to go back to Paul and say, there is nothing, you know, there's no, uh, or, or first Peter, one God and one mediator between God and man, this man, Christ Jesus, who, who gave his all, what did he say? Who gave himself as a sacrifice for all. Oh, what a wonderful savior. You know, this is what, this is what we continue to say. And, and um, with great affection for those who disagree with us, of course. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, this bleeds over into our conversation from last week about indulgences and, and, and the need for uh, some kind of mediator, and that mediator not being exclusively Christ, <laughs> but uh, but you have the mediation of the saints, you have the mediation of the priests, yep. you have the mediation of the you know, circumcision. Uh, yeah, I mean, every every <laughs> every every possible thing you get, and and it, and uh, I th- I think the I think you're right that the thought of going directly to the Father through Christ um, is, it, it just seems too, it, it seems too um, presumptuous. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think in some people's minds it's too presumptuous. I can't, I can't do that. I, I need, like, I need, yeah, I need someone else here. Yes. So let, me talk to, let me talk to the mother. Maybe that's, maybe, well, that's why Mary, that's why Mary, right? right? <laughs> Well, yeah. that's why the Mary cult uh, was gained such prominence. I mean, who doesn't, you know, particularly when you don't know the gospel, you know, daddy's grumpy and angry, you know, let's go, let's go see what mom says about these things. You know, I mean, there's a sort of, uh, um, and I think, you know, to that end, I think part of the problem when bishops go wrong is when there is a misunderstanding of, of love, when love is seen as sort of it exclusively as compassion or empathy, for instance, you know, which it is, what it often is. Well, then you get into a situation where you're saying, well, I'm, you know, this guy, who am I to judge? You know, this guy, this, this church is doing X, Y, or Z. And, you know, maybe they'll, they'll get their act together. Maybe they'll, you know, and, and you, you, you appreciate that quality in people, you know, you want that in your friends, but at the same time, you also want friends who say, you know what, like, I'm worried about you. And if you continue in this direction, you know, I think these are, these are the ramifications of what's, what your activities are going to bring. And in particular with a bishop, you know, like we've talked about before, the imagery that Jesus gives of himself is as a good shepherd, you know, who, who's on the walk, watch for wolves and on the watch for um, six sheep, you know. And so particularly, I think these bishops that, um, that sort of allow – well, I mean, again, I hate I hate to speak um, so harshly, and I'm really just speaking um, sort of historically, but about you know having seen bishops let down their sheep, you know, because they won't I use think, the crook, right? Yeah, I think that's fair yeah. enough to say, and I think 
again, I don't know any of the specifics of this issue that we're talking about with up in Pittsburgh, but I do think that, you know, it's, it's complicated, I'm sure. And it was, you know, lots of the various relationships were involved, uh, which is obvious. But at the end of the day, you know, you hope somebody makes a hard call when it needs to be made. You know, and, and to be fair to Bishop Hobby, he made the hard call to agree to step down when asked, yeah. you know. I mean, I, I care about him as many of people who know him obviously do. And I think, you know, we, we certainly were praying for that whole situation. But but there's a certain, um, there was a, a respect there in that, you know, abiding by that request that I'm sure, well, I don't, I'm not sure, I know, uh, required an immense amount of humility for him because that, you know, that's that's quite a thing to have to admit and yet we're grateful that it what the problem was not allowed to persist further than it did. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, my, my experience with bishops, personally speaking, and has uh, not been a good one. I, <laughs> here I am defending bishops, but for most of my ordained life, bishops have been you know, my enemy, I, the, to be honest. Yep. Even Same when way. I was, yeah, I mean, coming up out of, well, when I first began the process toward ordination, we had a bishop in Texas. I was in Texas at the time, Claude Payne. And, I remember going before him for my first interview to be accepted as a, uh, what, do they, what do they call it? A, aspirant. Uh, aspirant. Yes. Aspirant. Yeah. Yeah. And he asked me some questions like, what do you think evangelism is? I said, well, it's when you go and tell people about Jesus and ask them to believe in the gospel. And he yeah. said, nope. That's when you invite people to church. So they see the beauty of our liturgy and they're drawn in to become Episcopalians. And I said, Oh, well, I, 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 that's not what the Bible says. And he said, well, we're going to hold off on your aspiration for another, for another year. Um, oh, and so, wow. yeah, I was, held, I was held back, which was, was great. Actually, it, the timing was worked out perfectly. So I was in the same class in seminary with my wife who I met at seminary and, and got married. So, but anyway, from my entire seminary experience after Claude Payne went, there's another guy who came in and it was just, you're, you're constantly in the Episcopal church. You're constantly under, in fear of the bishop just saying, okay, that's it, and pulling the plug. Because you've left everything to go to the seminary, and the bishop, everything from that point on depends on your bishop allowing you to continue. Mm, interesting. And, and he can decide on, on a whim to remove you from seminary. He doesn't have to give you a reason. Just say, huh. you're going home. And uh, so that was a that was a huge fear all the way through seminary. And then I get out of seminary, I go to you know central New York with Bishop Skip, uh, Gladstone Adams II, which is a perfect Episcopalian name. And then uh, Gladstone Adams II, you know, he's, he's, he comes after me and my family and my church. He's, he's a heretic. And it's just, we've had a horrible experience um, with bishops. And yet, that's the very, very bad. Coming into the ACNA, I mean, just night and day. The first bishop yep. we had at the time was uh, Bishop Murdoch from AD&E. Um, and the A-team? A, yeah, on the A-team. <laughs> <laughs> no, from the um, Anglican Diocese of New England. And he came and he stood before our congregation the first Sunday he visited because every one of my churches just so suspicious of bishops. Um, my kids, yeah, my 14-year-old, no, I'm sorry, he's 14 year old now, but my then like, I think seven or eight-year-old kid was drawing these pictures with bishops. Fangs. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, attacking other people. <laughs> so so, so uh, he, he did. I, threw, I posted a picture of it on, on Facebook a long time ago, like 11 years ago. But he stood up before Bishop Murdoch stood up for the congregation and said, on behalf of the Episcopal office, I apologize for what my fellow bishops have done and 
just really humbled himself in front of the congregation. And, and from that point on, mm-hmm. it was just a, a very new relationship with, with bishops. Um, and I've had to learn not to be suspicious of bishops, which has been very difficult. Yeah, yep. I bet it has. Yeah, but my, my experience is a little bit different because I, I actually moved down, Laz and I moved down to Central Florida specifically to be in John Howell's diocese so that we wouldn't face that problem. And the problem, I have to say, of um, with that for me was that I also ran into sort of the opposite side, was that in for sort of conservative bishops, at least in the Episcopal Church, you know, in order for them to, I guess, to be tolerated or to be put up with, um, they, in my opinion, were less strident than they possibly could have been, uh, particularly with with allowing clergy to go uh, to various seminaries that, you know, were teaching things contrary to the scriptures, in my opinion. And so I was surprised because I went up to Trinity and there was like three of us from Central Florida, that class. And I was surprised at my ordination that there was like 16 ordinands all being ordained from all over, you know, CDSP, EDS, Duke, I mean, all these various places that you know, could you could navigate through. But from my perspective at that point in particular, I said, you know, what is going on here? Because if I were bishop, you know, that's the number one thing I could do is basically be a gatekeeper for where you went to seminary and who was actually ordained. Like you don't have to ordain people. You know, you could actually get them all the way to the end and say, you know what, uh, when you went off to seminary, you turned into a crazed heretical lunatic and I'm not going <laughs> to ordain you, you know, and I know that you're, you're, you're all upset about that, but, um, and I, you know, would that be the case? You know, of course, but it goes all the way back. I mean, we're sort of getting off track, I guess, but, you know, I go back to the, to the number of people that I've met who are in the ordination process who were encouraged because they were good lectors, you know, it's like you were good. I think Anne has a funny story about that, Matt. Like she was like, she went and asked her priest or something, like some questions from a commentary she was reading. And then he was like, Oh, well you must be ordained. You need to be ordained. You really believe this stuff? (laughs) That's right. Wow. Uh, Well, I think, um, you know, it's not, and I feel for, you know, the older I get and the more life, you know, layers responsibilities on me, um, I look at the, the role of a bishop and I pray for them with great um, fervency, you know, um, because it's, it is quite a responsibility, you know, and you are, you are the, you know, spiritual, you know, lead, I mean, look at Paul, you know, leading by example, imitate me as I imitate Christ, you know, you have this, these, um, these additional uh, spiritual responsibilities that you're carrying, and it is a heavy burden. You know, I pray for our bishops, and, and I'm grateful when, even in the midst of tough situation where there's mistakes were made, you know, that there's, a, in the ACNA at least, we've seen these bishops model, even in that case, you know, that what's going up in Pittsburgh, a, a humility and a deference to the life of the church that can even accept responsibility, you know, in a way that I hadn't seen. I mean, think about all the bishops that we have mentioned um, in the Episcopal Church who have just shuffled around or or not taken responsibility for mistakes they have made and look at the state the status of some of these congregations. I mean, look at Bishop Spong. I mean, he's the easiest to look at, but, you know, when he came to, to Newark, it was a vibrant living thing. And then he left and it's like, you know, the saddest, emptiest uh, diocese in the world, uh, in, in the church. And, you know, there's not, there's, there's, there's adulation and pride about that. You know, it's a cost of discipleship, you know, for turning, you know, really turning the church to the, to the face of the world. And, you know, would there have been some discipline from other bishops on him, but also some humility and confession on his part, you know, we may still be in, in the church. We may still, we may not have ever split. And, you know, of course that goes back to the Ryder trial and goes back to, you know, this long succession of the gentlemen's club uh, refusing to, to acknowledge the, the, the errors of one of its own 
And I'm grateful, you know, even as young as the ACNA relatively is, we're, we're watching the hard work of this discipline, even at an Episcopal level, take place. And I, um, I'm grateful uh, in, in this respect for Bishop Hobby and his leadership in that role as a model for, you know, what happens when you, you know, when, when, you, when you have to make a call that you didn't make and you have to acknowledge your responsibility, well, then we are those type people. And that's, that's quite something. Yeah, it's important to remember, I think, that though the bishop's relationship to his church is analogous to Christ's relationship to his sheep, and Jesus is the good shepherd, and ideally a bishop will be a good shepherd too. I was listening to the Preventing Grace podcast where Matt and Anne were talking about this in reference to, to husbands and wives, where husbands are supposed to care for their wives and lay down their lives for them similarly relating to them as Christ relates to his church. Important to remember though, your husband is not Jesus and you husband are not Jesus. And in the same way, our bishops are not Jesus either. And so we don't obey them unthinkingly as we would Jesus. If Jesus said something, we do it, whether we understand it, whether we agree with it or not. Our bishops are human beings, and we pray for them and support them and endeavor to obey them, yes, but understanding always that they are human and may be in need of a kind of loving rebuke, even from us, part of their church. Amen. Yeah, and I think we're watching that even now, is that even in the midst of of this, um, you know, quite dramatic situation happening up in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, there's been a lot of grace, even in the midst of these hard decisions, um, you know, without demonizing people, without, well, there's a bit of recognition is just what you said, Nick, that, that um, we all have feet of clay, you know, just because you have a miter or, a, you know, have you been raised to the height of the hierarchy? That's the pointy hat for the uninitiated. That's right. If you, um, and so, you know, I think that we, again, going back to JB Lightfoot, I mean, I don't, I think when, when I, for, so for instance, about, about being the supply chain, like when I read Paul, and I've been teaching through the pastoral epistles, so I'm, it's fresh on my mind. But, you know, here you have this guy who is an older man who raised up what he calls you know, my, my son in the faith, and he has nurtured and, and carried him and essentially trained him to be this pastor underneath his authority. And it's particularly in Second Timothy when he's writing from prison, you know, facing his own demise and sort of speaking very personally to Timothy. I read that with great um, sort of emotion, really, in, when, in sort of hopefulness for having that kind of relationship with my own bishop, you know, if I were Timothy, but I could read it both ways, and I could look below me, and young men in particular that we've raised up to consider the ministry, and I have a deep affection for them and hopefulness for them, and sort of, sort of see myself kind of reading either reflectively, like it's being addressed to me, or I'm actually writing it, and so I go back and forth when I'm in these books, and I think I, in the best situation, that's that's the model that we have been given with bishops, priests, and deacons, because we have this uh, a level of hierarchy which allows for dispersed, you know, authority from the top down. Uh, that's ideally bounded by the scriptures and accountable to the scriptures. And in our case, the thirty-nine articles, you know, and the formularies and all the things that we can bring to bear. But fundamentally, it's all in service of having clear expectations underneath the mercy of the gospel for the sake of proclaiming that gospel to the ends of the earth. And I think I've been very grateful for it, uh, particularly, as you said, Matt, also now having been in the ACNA. And this is, and we had a nice bishop in, in um, I'm sure, I don't think he listens to this, but in Kentucky, our bishop was kind, a kind man. Um, and I have no, I have no ill 
will towards him at all. Um, I just have a different relationship with Mark Lawrence, my yeah. current bishop, for which I'm very grateful. And I consider him, well, when I read First and Second Timothy, I can consider him speaking through Paul <laughs> to me in a very similar way, and I'm, and I'm grateful for that. I, I do think that when the ACNA was formed, the bishops who were part of that formation did recognize some of the institutional flaws of the Episcopal Church understanding of the bishop because the bishop in the Episcopal Church was, I don't remember even my, even when I saw good relationships between pastors and bishops, it being a pastoral relationship. I remember being a, a, a you know, a, a business relationship. How, how are you growing your church? Show me your books. Where's the money? Where's the income like? You know, the, 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 it was kind of a CEO type model of bishop. And the bishop was very, was just untouchable. And I think, I think it was a conscious decision that part of the ACA to, to, to be pastors, to their presbyters. And I, I don't know how that's worked across the board, but uh, I mentioned Bishop Murdoch and my present Bishop, Bishop Dobbs. We have, I have, always experience them and uh, doing their best to act as my pastor. And I never had that. I never experienced that at all. And for, for functionally, even though I had a bishop for most of my career, I'd been, you know, basically like the independent church because I didn't yeah. want to yeah. listen to Bishop yeah, for sure. Adams. But now I really have what, this is what it's supposed to be like. This is, I have bishops who are who had a bishop before and now who are really doing what I think we see modeled there by, by Paul and, Amen. and Timothy. Yeah, I've been, I mean, I have to say just in general in ACNA, and it's, of course, we're all, we're all, um, we're all a work in progress, but I've, I've seen that modeled from the bishop and now through a rector. I mean, I, I was a rector I mean, I didn't have a lot, you know, I didn't have a relationship with a bishop as the rector and the closest clergy confidant I had was you, Nick. But outside of that, we were basically were, were isolated and alone and having come into this diocese where not only is the bishop uh, modeling this, but through down through the rectors, which who he allows or doesn't allow to come in through the diocese. It's been um, incredibly um, well healing for one, but also instructive. I mean, I'm I'm actually getting to look and see what a what a functioning, albeit sin, you know, filled with sin as church is, um, but a functioning diocese and relationship works. You know, through from the bishop down to the priest down to the deacons, and um, it's it's greatly encouraging. I mean, I, I tell people all the time that you know that that you know that you can look at um, all these signs of life in ACNA, and you know, there's a lot of questions still unanswered, but in terms of the spirit and sort of the, the, the heart of this threefold ministry uh, beating, it's beating strongly. At least it is in our diocese. And I know, I mean, y'all are saying the same thing. And I think, you know, it's, it's been sort of <laughs> it has reinvigorated my appreciation for bishops, I should say, uh, having been um, in this diocese and in, in this church. And so I hope others can say the same. I hope, I hope they can. And I, and I um, will continue to pray. You know, we have a lot of openings right now across the various dioceses for bishops. So, you know, if you're listening to this, our listener, you know, pray. <laughs> and, you know, we're hopeful uh, that we'll continue to get um, strong men who are courageous and, and, um, and faithful and meet the qualifications laid forth by Paul for, you know, for an elder or presbyteros or episcopos. And, and trust that he will continue to do so. It is an interesting juxtaposition with the, sort of surfacely nice congenial bishops that we had in the Episcopal church to now having actual caring bishops in the ACNA. Um, and as you said, Matt, that can take some getting used to. I had, um, you know, my entire career was spent hoping to never have to talk to the bishop. And so when I came into the ACNA and my 
Bishop Steve Breedlove actually wanted to relate to me, I had to be upfront with him about how um, not only was I afraid of him, but that the nicer he was to me, the more afraid I would get because that's what our relationships used to be like. They were super nice as you experienced Matt until they change your locks. And um, that's the niceness is the setup, right? That's, that's, they, right. that's, lure that's you right. in. So now to have somebody who will in fact, and has flown to Louisville to care for me and who will fly to Louisville when he only has time, in fact, to meet with me in the airport because he then has yeah. to fly off to somewhere else. That's the extent to which he cares. It's a, a wonderful thing that will take some getting used to um, yeah. for, for somebody to actually want to love you in a way that you, your, your sort of love receptors have been withered away. And, <laughs> and now they're sort of having to grow again and be like, oh, wait, this, this is a feeling that I'm not used to. I think I'm praising God for it. And I am um, for, for actual love and care coming from a place where we're not used to having actual love and care come from. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Nick. And I mean, I think, you know, I think that's probably the heart, like when we were in the Episcopal church behind that, the depot thing, you know, it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a transactional, like, you know, you're for gay marriage, you're not for gay marriage, and you need to have a bishop who is or is not for it. But the idea, the idea behind it, I think, um, whether it was, whether it worked or not, it's another conversation. But the idea is that you actually had this relationship with, with a bishop. Um, and I think for one, I mean, we didn't have, we didn't, um, we weren't under that relationship for very long. Uh, but I think I was, like you just said, so unaccustomed to, to even the idea of it that I'm not even sure had, had we stayed longer, I would have availed myself in any meaningful way because I had just grown up and it's like if you grew up without a father you know it's like i don't know how to be one i don't know what to look for one and you know basically the whole concept is foreign and so you know i'm hoping and, and trusting in fact that you know as these as we continue to grow in acna that part of the attraction for young men coming into the church will be this support structure that has stood the test of time but that can be seen reflected in the bible itself in paul's loving care and concern for timothy and say, you know, this is, this is how I want to be treated. You know, this is how I want to be, to be taken care of, you know, and that's really what, what I see it as, because I have no doubt that I have made mistakes and will continue to make mistakes. But I also trust that the more honest and open I am with Ted, my rector, and then by extension, the bishop, that to the extent that they are going to um, help me, you know, not, not sort of prosecute me, um, is actually going to ultimately be good for, for my, my family, you know, and then by extension, uh, the church, wherever I end up serving. And that's, that's a hope. And, you know, it's, we, we have idealism and then we have reality, but we don't let go of that hope because we're people of hope, you know, we're people of, of uh, mercy and, and, and trust. And so that's what, I think that's where, if I was appealing to my Baptist or Presbyterian friends, I would say, um, come hang out, with me um, and listen and watch the relationships, this threefold relationship that I have with the bishops, priests, and deacons in my life and how it is serving me and then by extension the church. And it, at the very least, stop telling me that I'm, I'm not, you know, <laughs> scriptural or that I'm not, that I'm not, you know, there were some sort of weird quasi Protestants because we have this structure. Um, and at the best, why don't you consider joining up? <laughs> you know, that's what that's been, and that's happened more than once. So I'm, that's still my, my appeal. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and uh, make the call this week and say that that's going to be the end of our conversation. As always, we have come to the end of our time, not having said all that could be said, but we 
are grateful for your taking the time to listen. If you do want to keep the conversation. Wait, I had some mail-in thoughts. They haven't been, they haven't been accounted for yet. Oh, right. <laughs> we're going really to be counting votes for the next 72 hours and then <laughs> post the podcast. I'll do all sorts of research and refute all of your points and then post the podcast without letting you listen. <laughs> that sounds fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, you listeners out there, please do uh, be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Email us at mailbag at standfirmandfaith.com. We do thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we will hopefully be back next week. We'll see if we have a president by then or not. I guess we'll have a president. We'll see if we'll have the result of the election by then or not. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.